Hi, you're listening to your Route to Wellbeing podcast. This podcast shares strategies, insights, nuggets, and tools to inspire and support you as you step boldly towards creating the well-being that you desire and deserve. Each week, I share insights and inspiration from different people who have expertise across one or more of the 11 domains of well-being. Each one of the guests that I've chosen to talk to have found the clues through their lives and experiences, through their careers and their knowledge, that I want you to have access to. My big question is how can we all pulse with energy and truly live while we're alive? I believe that these people that I'm talking to have some of the crucial answers. So relax, listen up, and thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us a review and also to share this podcast with anyone in your network who you think it may help. I'm Sue Fullergood from the Energy Incubator and the author of The Sweet Spot. And it is a real pleasure this afternoon to have Katrina Boffard with me to talk about sexual health and well-being. Katrina is somebody that I met probably five or six years ago now when we uh, served together on um, the My Sexual Health team. Well, we still serve on the My Sexual Health team. And uh, Katrina is a real, she's a absolute boffin in all things sexual. She's a sexologist uh, and a psychologist. So she's extremely highly qualified in the domain of um, sexual health and sexology. And it is just a pleasure to be able to download a lot of ideas that Katrina has. I must say I have learned a fortune from you over the years, Katrina, and mm. it's always a pleasure when we um, can collaborate in serving a patient together. And um, so I really, really am grateful that you're here to give some of your insights to my listeners. So I'd love you to, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, Sue. I've learned equally as much from you, so the feeling's very mutual. Oh, thank you for that. And uh, I'd love to just give you the microphone and just invite you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and mainly if you can tell us a little bit about what got you into sexology and what persuaded you that that would be the area that you would like to specialise in. So... Sure. I mean, you you did introduce me and, and sometimes it's a bit confusing because a clinical sexologist, psychosexologist, psychosexual therapist, essentially I am a psychotherapist that I specialize in sexual health, um, mental health and relationships. And it's it's my journey into sexology really started out of the realization of the total and complete lack of general understanding, knowledge, and conversation around sexual difficulties um, within particular spaces, uh, or maybe in, within all spaces. And it was when I was at university, I was in um, third year, and we had a 45-minute lecture on sexual dysfunction, which is even a word now I, I don't really like. I use the word sexual difficulties. We had this lecture, and I sat as a as a student who has had fortunately a good education and has, was at university thinking to myself I've never heard of these terms before I've never heard of vaginismus I've never heard of anorgasmia you know I've heard of erectile dysfunction because they used to play uh, radio adverts on on um, 
the drive to, uh, breakfast shows in the morning about that. But I've never heard of these terms that affect cisgendered women. And, you know, at the time it was in relation to cisgendered women. We weren't even having trans conversations back then about the experience that trans men can have with these sorts of things. And it, it, it unnerved me really that I didn't know about any of this. And so it unnerved me that I had never heard about these terms and I asked my girlfriends and they'd never heard about them. And so it really started this, this curiosity to delve into why we weren't educated sufficiently about these things. We'd all had sex ed at school and obviously subsequent to that I've realized how useless that sex education was, unfortunately, and how ill-prepared we all are. Uh, myself included, for the first time that we experience penetration and have sexual intercourse with a partner. So it came out of a place of necessity, but then was really fueled by working at a sexual and reproductive health clinic in Johannesburg with the wonderful Professor Alna McIntosh, where I worked as a termination of pregnancy counselor for a few years, and I ended up doing my uh, postgraduate research in, in termination of pregnancy and understanding the experiences that women go through and how that impacts their sexuality. And then was kind of gently pushed towards a master's in sexology that I did in Australia at the University of Sydney. And it's been a deep passion of mine ever since to work within this field. Well, I've certainly seen that passion because uh, you wouldn't have uh, gained all the insights that you've gained if passion wasn't underpinning it and driving it. So um, let's get into the subject of well-being. How is, in your opinion, sex and healthy sex uh, an, an aspect of well-being? And if you could just take it one step further and help us understand, in your opinion, what are the effects of sexual difficulties on well-being? So I think that when we think of well-being, it's, I think of kind of the WHO and the World Association of Sexual Health's definition of it that it's not merely the absence of disease you know, being well and having you know positive or um you know happy happiness positive uh, well-being or happiness is not merely not being sick and when people think of well-being they generally just think of the physical well-being and the mental well-being and there's so many different layers of it we could have spiritual well-being or intellectual well-being and i can vouch for the intellectual uh, well-being having become a mother last year and being starved of any intellectual stimulation and how I knew my intellectual well-being wasn't really in a good enough space and then obviously sexual well-being as well it's it's often discounted or not even brought into the narrative of what makes us well humans well beings and I think again that kind of leads into your second question which is that if we aren't well sexually, if we're experiencing difficulty sexually, it's, it's again the most underrated thing how much it impacts us and every aspect of our life. So if we are struggling with a sexual difficulty, we're gonna see that in your mood, we're gonna see that in your daily functioning, we're gonna see that in your relationships, it's gonna show up in so many different areas of your life. Whether that's you, you know, throw yourself into work as to avoid focusing on the difficulties that you might be facing sexually, or it's that it starts to create difficulties you have, uh, you know, you might have within your relationship. So it is very underrated. And I really do wish that when we spoke about health and say going for your annual checkup with your physician, sexual health was included in that checkup. 
and medical professionals or psychological professionals or physiotherapists or OTs, whoever it is that you're seeing on a kind of more regular basis to assess your well-being or assess your health would be speaking more about sex because it's such an integral integral part for so many people in their headspace, in how they're experiencing their day-to-day lives. I love that. And I, oh, geez, wouldn't that be great? It would require that we would be able to speak a little bit more freely about sex, sex and sexual challenges and sexual experiences full stop why do you think it is that we're so reticent to talk about sex even in the health professions it starts with us as children you know and it's an intergenerational thing so if your grandparents didn't speak to your parents about sex in a sex positive way where there was permission to ask questions your parents were not brought up knowing that it was an important topic and probably felt quite ashamed and so they may have passed that down to you by not offering you a space to talk about it in a sex positive way and ask questions so i think that as healthcare providers it's within our own personal makeup that we have predominantly um, obviously this is not everybody i'm included in this in this majority we're not given permission from you know the get-go to talk about sex and Mm -hmm. children are curious children want to know and they do know and I mean these days we have access to sex at the click of a button which is terrifying um but it's something that needs to be addressed and if we could address it at an early 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 age we take we take the elephant out the room we decrease the shame we decrease the stigma and what you know you and I see is that people who come to consult us are so uncomfortable talking about sex but because you and I are comfortable to talk about it, it creates a comfort for them. It gives them the permission to talk about it. And so if you've got a healthcare provider who is very uncomfortable to talk about it, find another healthcare provider who's going to give you that safe space and that permission. But I, I really do think that it starts from very young. And I don't think that the way that we are trained as healthcare providers is helping us either because there is there, you know, minimal to no training on sexual health and how to talk to our clients or patients about it. And that in itself is also a massive, massive issue and actually an easier thing for us to address than the parent-child conversation. You know, I think some of it is actually something that's almost uh, trained into us, whatever your parents do and say. Because I, I remember when my little boy was, it was pretty small, I left him in the library while I had to go to a meeting once. And I left him with a librarian and she said, don't worry, there's books here. You can just sit on the carpet here and read. And I thought I was being a really good mother, you know, which other mother thought to leave their child in a library. Uh, and, uh, and I came back and there was this little boy, I think he was about four, and, and he rushed to put something underneath his bum. And he was blood red in the face and he looked so embarrassed and ashamed. And I said to him, so what have you got under your bum? And he said, nothing, nothing. Anyway, I prized this book out from under his bum eventually. And it was a book about sex that he'd found in the in the children's library. So assumably it was uh, suitable for a four-year-old. <laughs> not quite, but not too bad. And uh, I said to him, oh, I'm so happy you found that book. Let's take that home and we can look at it together. And he said, no, we're definitely not taking this book home. 
you know, and that was coming from a mum who was very comfortable to talk about sex and who had, you know, raised him talking about sex. I mean, not inappropriately, of course, but, you know, it was part of our conversation. So he had acquired from God knows where this shame and embarrassment about the subject. I just, I mean, he was hardly even going to school much. So I just don't know where it comes from, but it, it is so integral. And for us to be able to manage our sexual well-being, we do have to become comfortable to open our minds and talk about it, even if it brings up embarrassment and shame and difficulty. You have to do it yeah. anyway. It's, it's so thank paramount. You for for raising that to our awareness. So um, what do you think uh, the outcomes are when sex is not working? Oh, You've already long, said some of those things. How long can my list be? Yeah, <laughs> so, so just if I just kind of break it up into different categories, um, when sex is, is not happening the way that we would like it to happen or expect it to happen, which is actually a big problem in and of itself, uh, it can affect our mental health. Um, depression, anxiety, anger issues, uh, shame. I mean, you name it, mental health issues can come up. It can affect our physical health. So sex is actually quite good for us physically. Um, and the idea that masturbation is going to harm you physically or mentally is so archaic and outdated. And I hope nobody believes that anymore. Actually very healthy for you. Sex is a great form of cardiovascular activity. It lowers your blood pressure. It improves blood flow. So physically, if you're having difficulties during sex, not only are you not going to be getting those benefits, but there's probably going to be an increase of cortisol, the stress hormone in your body. There's probably going to be a lot of times that you are in the fight, flight, or freeze response, which is when your body kind of wants to get away from it and avoid it um, or doesn't know what to do with the situation. So physically, your body is being affected by the stress of or the distress associated with not having it. You know, you can have interpersonally with your partner. And we often see that, let's say, the couple who've got different interests in having sex, one wants sex less and one wants sex more, according to their own narrative. It's not actually the more or the less that's, that's the difficulty. It's the difference between the two of their levels that causes that distress. And even if you've got a partner who, who really isn't really interested in sex, but isn't distressed about it, it's their partner's distress that causes them distress. So the interpersonal thing's massive. Um, so it's multifaceted, the way that sexual difficulties can affect us. And yet this is the area of health, as I said at the start, that is the most underrated, the most undervalued in terms of its impact on our overall functioning and well-being. Mm. I couldn't agree with you more. And you talked quite a bit uh, uh, twice or three times, you've mentioned the word expectations. Can you talk a little bit to how um, so much of the time um, our expectations are so much a source of the problems that we encounter in the sexual realm? Sure. <laughs> I guess that our picture of sex in our mind is very often based on a uninformed, romanticized, unhelpful image that we may have seen in the movies, that we may have had our friends tell us about, that we witnessed when we watched porn or a partner said their previous partner used to do. And so what ends up happening is that the 
the idea we have around sex gets based on unrealistic expectations. So a very classic one is all women can reach orgasm. And uh, let's say in a heterosexual couple for the, the guy to say, you know, but all of my previous partners have, well, highly unlikely that that's the case because it's actually quite a challenge for women or those with the clitoris to reach an orgasm, especially during sexual intercourse. But the movies and the general narrative and magazines and erotica, you know, erotic fiction and porn portray a very, very, very different picture. So the re in a very Instagram way, the reality versus the product totally different and the more that we align our view of sex with the expectations we place on ourselves the more likely we are to have difficulties sexually because our expectations are not meeting up to what we thought they would be and I like to talk about the shoulding that we do in the bedroom we should all over the place which is very unhelpful we I should have an orgasm I should want sex I should get turned on who said who said that you should do all of those things? Where did those rules come from? Are you ascribing those rules to yourself because that's what you've seen other people do on movies or because your friends said they do that? Is that actually what you do? So expectations, I think, is one of the biggest issues in making us feel abnormal because it, it just generally leads us to have disappointing sexual encounters overall. And the sensation that you're abnormal or the idea that you're abnormal is so devastating to your self-esteem and to your well-being and to your sexual enjoyment. So, exactly. yeah, I, I think what you're saying is is so um, incredibly helpful because if if we could come and meet each sexual encounter in its uh, um, pure form with curiosity and just allow it to unfold as an adventure of its own rather than constantly comparing it to something that we've seen or expected or had before then we would have a completely different experience of, of sex and totally a totally different experience and and to speak to something quite close to your heart um you know to be mindful sexually means to be in the moment to, to be present in your body. And if you're constantly thinking, oh, should I be having an orgasm now? Or oh, I don't really feel as hard as I should be. Should I be hard? Um, oh my goodness, I'm not as hard as I was last time. Oh, should, should, should I be making more noises? All of that, you're not in your body. How are you gonna mm -hmm. be getting pleasure out of that experience if you're constantly in your mind? You've got to bring, I mean, I say this is like, it's easy thing to do. It's actually quite hard. And you know, it takes quite a lot of uh, practice and consistency. You've got to be bringing yourself back into your body to experience pleasure. And the more you should, the less you will. And I think there are two things there that I want to tease out. The one is that each person is unique and uh, not only is each person unique, but each sexual encounter unique. And especially for us women who are so changeable, um, you know, uh, with our cycles and and our moods, our, our bodies change and our desires change and our, what brings us pleasure changes. So it really is vital to meet each encounter with that that spirit of mindfulness and um, just in terms of what do you suggest people do when they find themselves comparing uh, themselves to an, uh, something they've seen in the movies or to what they think is supposed to be there have you got some tools and techniques that you can share 
I mean, one of the most important things is we actually need a better education about sex. And there are a lot of fantastic resources out there. You know, a podcast like this, a podcast like mine, uh, an Instagram page, um, a, a, a kind of website with videos. There's a lot of beautiful resources out there that can help you gain the knowledge that, that will lead to having a solid foundation around sex because if you have a solid foundation there's no more there's no more false expectations or unrealistic expectations your expectations can be shifted to be quite normal so it's such a simple thing that for somebody to to think that they're supposed to have an orgasm every time they have sex and then to read a statistic that says most women will not orgasm during sexual intercourse to read something like that in you know, on a reliable, through a reliable source is a means of validating their experience. So that's a massive part of it, that, that educational aspect and getting the right information, not just taking your information from movies, porn, friends, and your partner necessarily. But if you feel like something isn't right or, or, or you're broken in some way, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're not the only person who's going through that in actual fact you're far from broken you're probably quite normal and then I think the other thing which I'm sure I'm going to say numerous times and bore your listeners to death but communicate communicate is it's so simple it well it isn't communication is hard but the idea of it is simple we don't do it and sex in particular we do not talk about it and we know from studies, the more we talk about it, the more satisfying we actually report our sex lives to be. And so if we can talk to our partners who are receptive to these conversations about our expectations and where they come from and how they impact us sexually, we can work towards having much more satisfying sex. I mean, if you say to your partner, where did you learn about sex? Do you remember the first time you heard about what sex was or was there anything that happened in your life or that you you came across in your life especially in your childhood and young adulthood that you think impacted the way that you think about sex can you just have a conversation like that then you just ask each other a question about their sexual blueprint you know what what was the start of it where did it form how did it form and um converse on on the 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 basics of, your, of where your experience comes from. The more we talk about it, and even with friends, you know, I, I know that there's a tendency among women to talk more openly about it. I just wish sometimes, you know, heterosexual men would talk more openly about sex as well with their mates, not necessarily mm. with professionals, but they do, but with their mates. I think that there could be huge benefit from it. And I mean, I think of two cousins who run a wonderful platform called Mojo, that they, the one confided in the other, they were in their late 20s, confided in the other that he was having erectile difficulties. And the other cousin's response was, me too. And all of a sudden they felt normal. They felt like there was nothing wrong with them. Oh my goodness, somebody else is going through what I'm going through. Not only is he my age, he's actually related to me. And we can figure this out together and be there to support each other. And I mean, they've launched a fantastic platform subsequent to that because of it. But yeah, there, there's a lot of... Um, normalization and validation that comes through talking about these things but the, the benefit of the talking um only comes i think when we can talk without defense and yet somehow the minute we're talking about sex it brings up defensiveness it brings up 
self-judgment and it uh, you know it, it it it's just so difficult to talk about because it immediately makes us feel like we're not good enough or we're not meeting our partner's hopes and dreams and expectations or uh, can, can you sh shed a little bit of light on that defensiveness for us sure i i would say it's not listening with it's listening without defensiveness because you're your defensive response comes from a place of feeling attacked. So it's mm -hmm. listening openly and curiously. And instead of responding from, you know, how could you say that? How dare you? And I don't do that. Asking a question, why do you think that that is the case? Or I'm not so sure I feel the same way. Can you help me understand your position? Uh, again, I mentioned that the concept of communication is simple, but I do not believe that we are adequately prepared to communicate in any on any platform or any stage, um, you know, in our lives. I, I always make the joke that, or I have been making the joke for many years, that if we were taught at school how to do our taxes and what sex really looks like and how to have effective communication rather than Pythagoras' theorem and how to make a white sauce, as I was taught in home economics, it really would be a lot more helpful. I can say I haven't made a white sauce since I left school nearly 20 years ago, and I have never used Pythagoras' theorem. But what would have been really helpful is how to do my tax and how sex really is or what sex really looks like and how to have effective communication. I have had to go and study those things and have I've had to live through those things with partners or family members or friends in order to have the expertise to then talk to other people about them. So it isn't easy. It's, it's a difficult thing to do to talk constructively and not destructively because for the average person, we, we put a wall up, we feel attacked, we become defensive, we respond with contempt, we shut down, we avoid. There are a myriad of things that we do that are unhelpful when somebody is trying to talk to us. And just basic listening skills can help us get a, a, you know, go a long way. And I think obviously, you know, I don't want to use the whole podcast to talk about communication and listening skills because they actually need to be taught. But I think that's one term that's so relevant to both relationships and sex and the well-being of both is being curious. And instead of accusing, attacking, defending, be curious instead. And then when it comes to sex, you know, if your partner is saying, I feel like something's wrong with me and this isn't right, instead of saying, oh, well, all of my other partners had orgasm, respond with curiosity. Well, why is it that you think that that's the case? How is it that I can help you? You know, it's, it's not helpful to have somebody say, well, all of my other partners had them because that's just dismissing somebody's vulnerability in the moment. So I think curiosity uh, to, 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 to kind of bring that all together is so, so crucial both across, across all relationships and all aspects of relationships, particularly romantic ones. And and I'd love to just uh, throw one more idea into that, and that's the idea of gratitude. If somebody's going to let you in to their world and what they experience, wow, what a gift! I mean, uh, honestly, if you could come from that place of thankfulness that you could understand a little bit better, uh, it could really change the way you can listen.
And you often say, and I've heard you say this many times, and I couldn't agree with you more, uh, that the brain is the biggest sex organ of all. Uh, the, the, most, uh, the most important sex organ, yeah. I've, and I the biggest. To, no, no, the skin, the skin is the biggest. Oh, the skin, skin yeah. How can I? Yeah. our biggest sex organ, but our brain is our most important sex organ. Great. Uh, yeah, thank you for pulling up the skin, and that's so true. Tell us more about the brain as a sex organ, Katrina. You want to improve your sexual experience? Work on this. You want to... Shut down your sexual experience. This is going to do it. You you want to create heightened arousal? Start here. You I mean you name it. This is the jackpot location. You found that the pot of gold sort of thing. The brain is the most important sex organ because it is regulating our sexual response and sexual experience. So while our body physiologically responds with arousal if we are turned on. It can also turn us off. It can also say to us, oh, I don't really like the way they were touching me. And are they really going to do it that way tonight? And, and those are all turn offs. And you can hear that in your mind. And your brain goes, this doesn't feel like the right place for sex to take place. So I'm out. And it can shut it down. And situated within this idea of context. Because if you find yourself in a hotel room, overlooking the ocean sunset, and you just had a margarita together on the balcony. I'm pretty sure, you know, if you're feeling content and happy, that your brain, that most important sex organ, is going to see all of this and go, hmm, mm, this feels good. Okay, I'm, I'm keen. I'm open. Let's see where this goes. Whereas if you're standing in your kitchen, in your pajamas, cooking dinner, and your kids are pulling on you, and your partner is sitting on the couch not helping you, or you've had a fight, your brain is going, Absolutely not. If they try anything, I am out. You know, so your brain is the one that is constantly scanning the environment that we're in, scanning the internal landscape, scanning the emotional space that you're in, in your relationship and within yourself, and calling the shots on whether to go for it or run away from it. And so your environment physically makes a big difference. What's happening within your body? Are you in pain? Because that's going to shut down any desire to be sexual. Um, are you happy in your relationship? Are you happy with the kind of sex you're having? Because that is a massive thing. If you're having sex and every time you're lying there, thinking like, this is so boring and so dull. I heard a beautiful thing the other day from a colleague of ours in the US saying, is the sex you're having worth having? It's a massive turnoff for our desire to be sexual if the sex you're having is not worth having. So this organ here can really shut down our ability to want sex, our ability to get into the mood, to get turned on, to get aroused, and even to reach orgasm, which we all we all kind of reach for and try and, and get to uh, when we have been, you know, when we're engaging in sex. Other thing is that if we are on specific medication, it works on particular circuitry and chemicals and neurotransmitters within the brain that will actually shut down our ability to respond sexually. So something like an antidepressant or high blood pressure medication is going to decrease the way that we respond sexually from a physiological perspective. And so this brain, this organ, great sometimes, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, and terrible at other times. And again, I guess I speak to your mindfulness, um, our mindfulness discussion, but it comes back to, you know, getting out of your head and into your body. So 
now let me just speak about how it can heighten our sexual experience because it is the most important sex organ. So if you're physically intimate with somebody and can feel like that sexual intimacy is starting to grow, you may, you know, if you were to tune into your thoughts, you may hear yourself thinking like, that feels so good. I love it when they touch me there. And that's where your brain is acting in a very helpful way and heightening your experience of sex. But then other means of, 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 of engaging that brain sexually are things like fantasy and thinking about something that turns you on and allowing that to be a part of your sexual experience with another person. Because if you can engage that most important sex organ to be in that moment with sex, whether it's thinking about something exciting and erotic that is arousing, or it's using your mind to pay attention in the moment as it's happening to the temperature or texture or sensation that you're feeling on your skin as somebody touches you, that is gonna heighten your sexual experience. So this organ, it's great, it's wonderful. Aren't we so lucky to have these things called brains? But it's also mm-hmm. very unhelpful and requires intentional effort to keep in focus. And we all know this because we find a lot of us nowadays, especially in the 2023, we find focusing on things and concentrating on things incredibly hard. We find our attention being pulled in 101 different ways. So yes, it is the most important sex organ, but the, the skin is the biggest sex organ. So that brings me to sort of highlight a little bit about desire and uh, and that in taking it into arousal. You know, I often hear women patients of mine, especially menopausal women, say, if I never have sex again in my life, I couldn't be happier. I wouldn't be happier. What do we do to enhance our desire? Now, obviously, um, we're assuming that whoever we're talking to at this stage has had their hormones checked and just important to note that if your desire and libido is lower than it normally is or than you'd like it to be it is worth having your hormones checked and seeing your um, hopefully sexology trained doctor uh, to make sure that that there's nothing um, physiologically wrong in your body but um, assuming that there's nothing physiologically wrong, what do we do to enhance our desire for sex and increase our ability to be responsive and, and easily aroused? Before I speak about desire, I just want to say that for any menopausal woman, if you consult with your gynae, ask about sex, talk about sex. You know, when we are menopausal, our vaginal estrogen, our estrogen decreases, and so our vaginal lubrication decreases. And dry sex is not good sex. So that is going to affect your your physical experience of sex. So talk to your doctor about your sex life. And if they aren't comfortable, as Sue said, go and speak to a a, um, sexual health physician or a doctor with a special interest in sexual health, somebody who's sex positive and can have these conversations. So we've touched on already so many things that relate to desire. Desire is, I mean, it's, it's the sexologist's bread and butter so to speak, because everyone, everyone who doesn't identify as as a asexual being, somebody on the spectrum of asexuality, is going to experience fluctuations in their desire. And some people just want sex less, and some people just want sex more. And neither is better, neither is worse, they're just different. But the difficulty comes in when you have two people with differences. 
And how do we navigate that? Because it's the differences that are gonna bring up the distress, as I mentioned earlier. So with desire, I think that the first thing I would wanna say is what is desire? It is our interest in engaging sexually or being open and willing to engage sexually. So that's the first thing. I think then the second thing to say is that we actually get, we get different types of desire. We get, you know, desire that comes out of nowhere, that you can be sitting at your desk at work and all of a sudden you feel like having sex or, or, or bringing yourself in or, to climax and you're sitting at your desk and you've got a meeting in two minutes and you think, well, okay, well, pity about that. And you just have to let it go. So it comes out of nowhere and usually it's a very inconvenient times and it's almost never at the same time as your partner. And then the other type of desire that we have is desire that happens in response to something that we see here, do experience sexually. Um, and that can be our partner bending over when they get dressed or our partner sending us a flirtatious text or seeing a sex scene on a movie or talking to your girlfriends about sex at girls dinner and feeling riled up when you get home or having sex because for the majority of people on the receiving end of an initiating partner their desire to have sex only appears once they are already having sex the person who's initiated has usually felt like sex so they are the ones who may be seen as having spontaneous desire but their desire could have been responsive to something they'd seen heard felt experienced and so on so two different types of desire the the difficulty is again our expectations the idea and this unhelpful narrative of men always want to have sex women don't want to have sex gay men always have sex they always want it you know uh, same-sex couples, uh, women are are doomed by lesbian bed death. Their their relationship will fizzle because their desire for sex will go away. None of those gendered ideas are very helpful for our sexual desire. So again, there's those expectations and those shoulds that we uh, ascribe to ourselves that do us no favors. The reality is, some people just want more sex, and they turn towards sex or reach for us a partner sexually because they are looking for closeness or connection in the relationship and then there are other people who don't reach for sex or don't need sex to happen in order to feel closeness in the relationship and then I think that you know a point that I mentioned earlier so many people say that to me you know if I never had sex ever again I'd be okay with that and I hear it majority of the time from women Sometimes also I do hear it from heterosexual men, but majority of the time I'm hearing it from women. And again, is the sex you're having worth having? Are you enjoying it? Is it pleasurable? Do you feel like your sexual needs matter and are met? Do you know what your sexual needs are? Have you had an opportunity to explore sexually things that might be a turn on for you that are different from what you're doing? Because most people are, are running through a script when it comes to sex, they're actors who've rehearsed their lines and we're human, we're humans, um, as humans, we're creatures of habit. So we generally do the same thing every time we have sex, particularly in couples who don't have time to have sex, you know, new parents, uh, people who've been together a long time, people who work hectic, stressful jobs, who have friends, who have families, who, who really need to be more intentional about the way that they have sex. We, we, we don't give it enough uh, gravitas in our relationship and of course in the beginning for most people it's exciting it's thrilling we make time for it you know even if we have a stressful job and family and friends and children 
we make time for sex in a new relationship because it's novel, it's exciting, we automatically put it on the top of our priority list. We want it, we seek it out. But the more comfortable we get with each other, the more familiar the sexual routine gets, that script gets, the less interested we get. And, you know, people always ask me, oh, how do we keep the spark alive? And, you know, when I say to people, what kind of sex do you want to be having? They'll say, oh, we want spontaneity and we want to be novel. And I'm like, cool, but that's actually unrealistic to expect sex to be like that all the time. Don't get me wrong. Sex can be novel and spontaneous for sure. But day to day, week after week, year after year, if that is your expectation, again, you're going to be majorly let down. So desire is super complex. It's not as easy as person A you know, kisses person B, person B suddenly feels a rush of desire, rips off person A's clothes, they they get into the throes of passion, they both have an orgasm, that's it. That is what movies make you think it looks like. It does not. But movies wouldn't sell if they portrayed the realities and the difficulties that we will have with sexual desire. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I just think there's so many things that, you know, little habits and things that we could encourage ourselves to devote a little bit of attention to like I don't know shaving your legs or putting on perfume or a, a nice pair of underwear or whatever just to help yourself get into the mood um that's if you're a, a, a cisgender woman but if you're you know what whatever it is for you something that that just puts you in a sexual sort of state of mind um, and actually doing that well in advance of sex in, encourages your brain to start looking for cues that can help you with your desire so I think uh, wow. so much of what you've said is so true and those little I'm going to call the mindful um, little dollops that you can put into your life to try and keep your own desire alive because it's good for you not just because it's good for your partner but because yeah. it's going to make a difference in your world in your life in your yes. relationship in your self-esteem yeah and so in your you spot on. i mean you're spot on and and wearing sexy underwear shouldn't be for somebody else it should be because it makes you feel good but a lot of people, you know, because their partner wants them when they dress up in nice underwear, that makes us feel nice too. That makes us feel great. So we do it. But, but if you're struggling with desire, think about the things, the contexts that help you feel more open and willing to engage sexually. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, it's a good time for me to caveat and say sex is not just intercourse. You know that, I know that, but the average person doesn't know that. The people, so when I say the average person, people without a degree or an extensive academic knowledge and into psychosexual health and, and, se and sexual and reproductive health, sex is not just intercourse. It's not just penis and vagina. Sex is everything we do with a sexual intention with our partner or alone or with many partners, who knows? It's all that we do. And so I think, again, if you're constantly placing this expectation on yourself to have intercourse, which can be exhausting sometimes, you know, if you've had a long day, oh my goodness, having to do that at the end of the day after a long day of work and gym and barking the kids and going for a walk and all of this, it's exhausting. You know, stop placing those expectations on yourself and, and kiss and cuddle and make out and use your hands and go to sleep or get into, get onto the couch after the kids have gone to bed or before your dinner's ready and make out and kiss and cuddle and use your hands and be done and have your dinner. You know, I, I do tell couples not to wait until the end of the day to have sex. Terrible time, terrible time to have it. 
But yeah, again, stop expecting sex to be the last thing of the day. Very unlikely that one or both people will be interested at all when they're tired. And stop expecting yourself to just feel like it out of the blue. You probably will sometimes, but you also may not. And that in itself tells us something. If you're not feeling like sex, whereas you maybe have felt like sex in the past, what's up? What's going on with you and your environment? There's that need for curiosity again within partnerships. You know, what's happening for you? I've noticed that you just, you're not as interested in sex anymore. What's going on? You know, are you on medication? Are you struggling with your mental health? Have you got any physical, uh, is there anything physically that's, that's difficult for you right now? How's our relationship? Are you stressed at work? There are so many factors, so many factors that influence our ability to want sex and show up for sex. And one of the things, uh, and there's so many things I want to come back and circle back to, but one of the things that um, it makes us want to show up for sex is to realize the importance of pleasure in, in our lives. And I think so often, uh, in this day and age, especially people are on that hamster wheel going for going for life at such a pace um, and they're so overstimulated and overdemanded on that there's no resources left uh, for pleasure. And I think we, we always think of food as being a source of pleasure. Well, everybody in my world, let me say, not, uh, not that that's a universal phenomenon, but many people think of food as being a source of pleasure. But we forget that that touch and um, and connection and affection and and sexual pleasure are sources of pleasure for us. And I think we're sexually um, sorry, we pleasure seeking beings. And so I think it's really important to also remember that pleasure is integral to our well-being, and and we need pleasure in our lives. So take the emphasis of food. Okay put it on the body and on touch yeah but you can i i use food all the time i mean i'm a massive foodie myself but i, I use foodie all the time in my in my sessions with my clients you know do you still get pleasure from eating or is eating just perfunctory at this point you know do you notice when you enjoy some food do you stop and savor the moment well can you do that with sex again is what's on the menu sexually what you want to eat because if you have the same menu presented to you every single time you have sex you know I, I wouldn't want to eat that personally um I'd get very bored I would get very little pleasure from eating the same dish every night for the rest of my life so you know I love using food as an analogy it relates beautifully whether it's about pleasure or how much is on offer or you know the types you know are we having are we having starters mains and desserts are we just going to do mains tonight are we just going for dessert this evening tomorrow morning whatever but using food to notice your pleasure your, your pleasure response in your body using it as a place to be mindful about how your brain so i'll give you a really silly example i'm obsessed with rusts rusts which are a south african um kind of hard dunking biscuit effectively are just the highlight some of the sometimes the highlight of my day when the day has been very typical difficult or I've had a very sleepless night and I know that in the morning I get a coffee and a rusk and I love it so much and I enjoy it but there have been numerous times I realize I've just consumed the rusk there's been no enjoyment it's just perfunctory it's what I do every morning it's done and it's frustrating because I could take two to three minutes maybe not even I mean rust doesn't usually last that long for me but you know a minute <laughs> a minute yeah one minute of my entire day I mean that is nothing to just stop and just savor this moment and if you just as a couple were to just stop 
And in the middle of the kitchen, just kiss each other, just for one minute, one minute, where there's no expectation that sex is going to follow and should not follow, right? I'm going to use should not in this case, because we don't want to feel pressurized. We're less likely to want sex if we feel pressure or there's expectation or demand. But just stop and kiss for one minute. Just notice how that feels in your body and move on after that. I mm. promise you, it is so powerful how much something as simple as that can help people feel reconnected with mm. not only their partner, but with their experience of pleasure from a very foundational, basic part of them or mm. deep, deep kind of base, base part of them. Mm. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. I love your analogy of the rusk. I love rusks too, so <laughs> I get you. Um, but uh, foreplay is what you're talking about, I think. And that it is so important to remember that foreplay starts maybe in the morning with that SMS to say, I'm just thinking about you, you know, whatever. Um, and so there's so much uh attention on 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 the actual sexual act but we forget that it's it's actually a, a whole day event sometimes and and if you could think about it in in those terms uh i think it would make a huge difference i, I just want to share that um i got an sms out the blue from someone i'd only met once uh but who's shared my name uh whose wife shared my name and it turns out they'd been married for 45 years and he sent her this delicious message telling her, and it was about 8.15 in the morning, how much he was looking forward to touching her beautiful body when he came home from work. And of course, he was mortified when he realized he'd sent it to the wrong suit. But, <laughs> but I just thought, how magnificent is that? And that is really an example of foreplay. And, and if only oh, yeah. we could... Uh, do more of that kind of foreplay, I think our sex yeah. lives would change so significantly. I'm going to come back to food. You have to think of everything that you do outside of anything sexual as the prep work for the meal. So you have to prepare all the ingredients to get ready to cook it, to have your starters, mains and desserts. I love using food. It's such a helpful way of, because of, of, everybody eats. Uh, you have to eat to live and some people live to eat like me but you have no choice we all eat we can use it as such a helpful analogy because we can all relate to it there was a fascinating study done in 2021 by some pretty prolific researchers within the field of sexual health and it it was a study on how the heteronormative roles in terms of labor within the home impact our our desire to be sexual and as I'm sure you can imagine, it was found that an inequitable division of labor in the home between heterosexual couples impacts a woman's desire to be sexual. And while men in heterosexual relationships may not believe me when I say this, I can, I can say this very personally and professionally, when my other half helps me with the tasks of running the home, I am more amorous towards him when I feel like he shows up to help me take care of our son I am way more amorous when I don't feel like the sole responsibility of feeding our family and keeping our house going is on me I'm more amorous and in this day and age and we still have quite stereotyped you know gendered norms when it comes to 
home and division of labor. And that actually impacts women's desire to be sexual, now proven, which is beautiful. So the prep work for engaging sexually is not just buying her flowers or, or kind of giving him a cuddle on the couch, but it's actually showing up for each other intimately in other ways. It's supporting each other. It's having open conversations. It's being vulnerable with each other. Trust is such an important part of engaging sexually and letting go. And sex is all about letting go. So if you don't feel safe in that space with your partner or you don't feel like they are meeting you where you want to be at with them, it's very difficult to, to even notice that prep might be happening. And a big thing that I, I say to couples, which is, it's always I really love asking couples this in in my sessions because it's always interesting to hear the responses I get partner a to ask partner b partner a says what do I do to you or for you that turns you on because maybe partner a thinks that by smacking their bum when they walk past or by pinching it that's showing them that they're interested and that turns them on and partner b goes absolutely not it irritates me beyond but when you offer to give me a massage when I've mentioned my shoulders are sore sure you know that actually turns me on because it feels like you see me and you see I'm not okay and you want to physically support me and that feels so good that I just get turned on by it you touch you touch me and that feels good so and and then I get them, you know, and it's often a surprise to partner A partner say, oh, I didn't I didn't realize that. I do that more. And partner B says, Great, more massages, can't wait. But partner B <laughs> then has to ask partner A and say, like, what do I do for you? Or or how do I do it for you that that turns you on? We turn ourselves on, right? We have the option, again, from a context perspective, to turn ourselves on or turn ourselves off. So a situation that may be arousing today and tonight. If I've got a sick baby tomorrow, it may not be arousing because my mind is on my sick baby, right? Mm. Or my elderly father or my pet that's not well, whatever. So it's, it's I, I turn myself on, but my partner may do things. It's actually about feeling desired. So my partner may do things that I view as feeling desired. So when my partner compliments me, I feel desired, but they didn't know that. They just thought, oh, well, I'm not big on compliments. So, you know, it's just not part of my makeup. But Actually, if you knew that it helped your partner feel more desired and desire is part of this prep work for your starters, mains and dessert buffet that you want to have around sex, would you not do that more? Would you not be interested in engaging in that more? So, so, so yeah, I hate the word foreplay, but I've yet to find a better word for it other than the prep work for sex. <laughs> and you know i think one thing that uh, you know you really are saying and i think i'd love to highlight is that one thing about me is i'm not like you you have to remember that your partner doesn't love what you love and especially yeah. not if you're um heterosexual because men don't love the same things that women do and and other way around but even if you're not i mean your partner yeah. doesn't love what you love and it takes other things to turn them on so bringing that curiosity is vital exactly oh, i could go on talking to you all day katrina we've just got warmed up and now i know our time mm. needs to come to a close but i do just want to ask you have you got one or two little nuggets that you'd love to leave with the the listeners that are just perhaps going to help them turn their sex 
sex lives around and bring more pleasure into their existences? Sure. I think that the first one is you need to be intentional. Good sex does not just happen. I wouldn't have work if good sex just happened. I'd be out of a job. And let me tell you, I'll always have work. So good sex is intentional. It requires work. It requires effort. It is not going to magically appear just because it was there in the beginning of the relationship and stop thinking sex will be like it was in the beginning of the relationship. There's too many factors there that we can't reach back and pull out into the present. So be intentional about having good sex. Ask for what you want, learn what you like. Uh, explore different things, read, educate yourself, set time to be intention to be intimate and physical. It's underrated. I think people think it takes the spontaneity out of it, but sex is very, really spontaneous. So the first thing is to be intentional. And then secondly, it's so boring that you need to communicate. We there are too many people that go through life without saying what they want. And it makes me think of the beautiful absolutely extraordinary movie good luck leo grande and i don't know if you've seen it sue i have go watch it it is with emma thompson and she deserves every award in the world but it is the epitome of what happens to us if we never speak up about our needs and wants and desires and it's just a fantastic portrayal of what ca- what can happen sexually when we are when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and intimate intentionally within a safe space. I love it. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you for your wisdom, your insight, your uh, expertise and your ingenuity. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that we can talk some more going forward because we were just getting warmed up here. (laughs) Have a wonderful rest of the day. and, uh, And thank you for sharing all that with us. Pleasure, Sue. I love chatting to you anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Route to Wellbeing. I hope that this episode has been really useful and helpful for you. Thank you to the team who brought it into being and to our special guests who so generously gave of their time and their insights. Please remember to share it with all in your network who you think it can help. Sharing help that really helps is what makes the world go round.